Please turn with me in your Bibles now to Psalm 79 on page 459. If you're using one of those black pew Bibles in the seats around you. Psalm 79, page 459. I've entitled this sermon, A Song About God's Jealous Anger. A song about God's jealous anger. You'll see very clearly in verse 5 where the title comes from. Before I read the text, I'd like to make your attention aware that um, the well-known TV celebrity Oprah Winfrey in the early 90s during one of her famous talk shows was telling everybody why she rejected the God of the Bible. I think it's on YouTube. You could actually find it and listen to these words yourself, but I'm going to quote from her talk show why she, during a church service, quit altogether in believing in the God of the Bible. In her own words, she said, I was in a church service and the preacher was talking about all of the attributes of God, his power, his eternality, his beauty, his truth, his love, his grace, his mercy. I was caught up in the rapture of that moment until the pastor went on to say, and his jealousy. When I heard that, something struck me. I was 27 or 28 years old, and I was thinking about how God is all. God is everywhere. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. But the thought that God would be jealous, that God would be jealous of me, something about that did not feel right in my spirit. Because I believe that God is love and that God is in all things. End quote. The likelihood that Oprah would ever hear this sermon seems very low. But if I were to respond to her directly, I would say, Oprah Winfrey, yes, the God of the scriptures is jealous. In fact, he is jealously angry, but not for the reasons that you think. For that, we need to go to Psalm 79. Please follow along as I read. A Psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your temple, holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. 
Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us. For we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. And that ends our reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And my prayer is that you will not respond to Psalm 79 or this preacher like Oprah did, but that you will respond the way Asaph and all of those that have used Psalm 79, giving thanks to the jealous, angry God forever from generation to generation. Amen. Here's the sermon in a sentence and the outline of the sermon. Yes, God really is, actually is. Jealousy, jealous and angry for his own name in order to bring salvation through judgment. Yes, God really is jealous and angry for the glory of his name so that he would bring about salvation through judgment. So the outline goes like this. Number one, we should observe the reality of God's jealous anger. It's true. Number two, we should understand the reason for God's jealous anger. And number three, we should see the result of a jealous and angry God. And in a quick nutshell, the reality is God is jealous and angry. The reason is for his own glory and namesake. And the result is salvation through judgment. That's my best attempt, at least as it is today, for unpacking for you God's holy word here in Psalm 79. And I'd like to do that in three parts. Part one, step one, let's observe the reality of God's jealous anger. Verse 5 is, as I mentioned, the key text here. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? And for all of you that are are new to the Bible, we're in a Hebrew poem. It's a song, which is why the sermon title is a song. And so this is poetry. And the way this poetry works is they say one thing, and then they say the same thing with different words that are paralleling one another. It's called Hebrew parallelism. Verse 5 parallels God's anger with God's jealousy. So this is about God's jealous anger. Whatever his anger is, it is similar to, it is a synonym of jealousy and anger. These two go together. 
So we need to first observe that reality here in this text, and then we need to also observe that this is not a one-off random idea that comes just in this singular psalm, Psalm 79. The best guess is that here in verse 5, this language and this understanding of God comes right out of one of the most well-known sections of the entire Bible. In fact, the story I started with about God's jealousy that turned Oprah Winfrey away from the God of the Bible is more than likely based on the quotation that is used in Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments. So I'm guessing that even if you're here today as a guest or visitor and you're not very familiar with the Bible, you've heard of the Ten Commandments before. I'm hoping you have. The Ten Commandments are a summary of God's expectations for what his people should do as they want to reflect his character in the world. And here's the second commandment. This is from Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Do you see the logic there? Do not have other idols. Do not make carved images. Why? Because I'm jealous. I am a jealous God. And he continues in the Ten Commandments, explaining to Moses, And I will visit the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But I will show steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The reality of God's jealous anger toward those who would reject God and choose to worship idols is written in the Ten Commandments of all places. Underscoring the point, yes, God really is jealous and angry. Not because it's the opposite of his love, as we heard from Oprah Winfrey. I thought, I think, I want my God to be all love. Precisely because of God's love, as it even is explained in what I just read from the second commandment. Those who hate God, reject him, and choose false gods God is jealously angry because of his love for them, not opposite of his love for them. Let me illustrate the point because I think this is one of those moments where any of you might be tempted to make the mistake that Oprah made. Early in my marriage, my wife and I, uh, we were trying to figure out what life would look like, what healthy balance would be for my time, her time, our time. Any of you that are married, you probably know what I mean by this. But when I was married, I was 19 years old, my first year of marriage, and I was playing basketball at a university here in Illinois. I played a lot of basketball. I played in the morning before classes. I played in between classes. I played after classes. I would go and shoot extra and wait lift in the gym three, four times a day. And so, my wife and I, we would talk about how I had a mistress, and that mistress was an orange ball, a basketball. 
And I think that helps to illustrate the point. Precisely because of my wife's serious, zealous love for me, she was jealous of basketball. Now, Christine does not love basketball like I do. She's not jealous of it in an envious sort of way. Like, she's jealous that I get to play and she doesn't. That's not the kind of jealousy we're talking about. In fact, a great synonym or different translation of the word jealous is zeal. How long, O Lord, will you be angry? Will your zeal burn like fire? The word jealous for most of us is going to bring up a negative connotation. And I think, assuming the very best about Oprah Winfrey, I think she just heard the word jealous, didn't understand what it actually meant, and then just dismissed the God of the Bible wrongly and inaccurately. What God is really like is zealous for you. Zealous with overwhelming love like my wife was for us to be together and me not to make an idol out of an orange basketball going in a round hole. She wanted me. She wanted us to be together. Do you see what I'm trying to say as it relates to God? He's angry because you're choosing something else that's not good for you. Idolatry is choosing alternative solution and savior. Choose God. And when you don't choose God, you're ruining your life. And he loves you too much to let you make that choice. Precisely because of his zeal, his passionate love for you, he gets angry. And he's jealous for more time with you because of his love for you. God's love for his people is not at odds with God's love for his name. And therefore, we will see that the reality of God's jealous anger toward you and me is to honor his name as you bear it and carry it and take his name upon your life. So do you all at least have this fundamental understanding of our psalm and not get quickly distracted by the word jealous? I hope you will. I hope that you will not respond like Oprah or many others. If you're going to reject Christianity, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you know yourself not to be, and you're like, yeah, this is precisely why I'm not a Christian. I don't love this talk about a God full of anger and wrath and jealousy. I want to ask you a sincere question. And if you're here today and you are a Christian, I want you to think about this question too as it relates to maybe your conversations with non-Christians, your evangelism. And here's the question. Is it possible much like Oprah, that you are not rejecting the God of the Bible, but you're actually rejecting a caricature of God. A presentation of God that, honestly, I would reject too. If you and I would listen carefully to the quotation I read for you from Oprah Winfrey, I can't worship a God who's jealous of me. I want to raise my hand and say, Amen! I am with you, Oprah. Out of the entire statement that you made, that's the most important line in that statement that I want to wholeheartedly agree with. He is not jealous of you. That's not his supreme passion and zeal in this world. That is not the God of the Bible. In fact, it's 
earth-shatteringly, life-changingly different than what any of you might expect. It takes the Spirit of God to open your eyes to see the reality of what I'm about to share. Point two. God is not jealous of you, Oprah. God is jealous of his own name being made much of in all the nations. Look at verses one through four. Oh God, the nations have come in to, and then notice the possessive descriptions of your inheritance, your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem, your holy city, into ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. What's the point of emphasizing your, your, your? Hey, God, this is your people, your city, your temple, your presence. And when a nation comes in that does not worship Yahweh, doesn't give their allegiance to the one true God of the Bible, and they just easily march on through and wipe out the temple, you know what they do? They think you don't care. They think you're not around. In fact, verse 10 makes that explicit. Why should the nations go around and say, hey, where's your God? That was too easy. Jerusalem is burning with literal fire and there are literally dead bodies all around and there are birds not coming down as we saw in Psalm 78 to feed God's people but to feed on God's people. What a contrast from last week. Verse 4 makes it explicitly clear. We have become a taunt. We have been made fun of. We have been teased and mocked by our neighbors. The basis of their prayer is that they have excellent God-centered theology. They know the Bible well. They understand how God has revealed himself, and therefore they are accurately approaching him the way he should be approached, which is saying, God, your name is being belittled. We think that you care about that. We're convinced that you'll want to listen to what we have to say because what we have to say is, Everyone around here thinks you're weak and impotent. Verse 5. How long will you be angry forever? And how long will your jealousy burn like fire? Instead of pouring out your anger on us, do that on these nations that don't know you. Do you see the importance of this idea that God's jealous anger is related to those who are calling upon his name and his name being defiled? Pour out your burning anger on those kingdoms that don't call upon your name, the ones that have devoured Jacob and laid his waste, laid waste his habitation. Big idea is this. Yes, God really is full of passion and zeal and anger toward anything that would ruin you or the earth, but not precisely because you are the center of the universe but because it flows naturally out of his zeal and passion for the glory of his name among all the nations. The focus of Psalm 79 is not on how supremely in love God is with you and that he's jealous of you. He is jealous with zeal for himself, his name. And if that wasn't clear enough already in verses 1 through 6, look at verse 9 for the... definitive, climactic prayer that makes this point. 
Help us, O God, of our salvation. Four, the purpose of bringing glory to your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for the sake of your name. That is an excellent way to think. It is an excellent way to pray. And my guess is that you, if you skip church for weeks and weeks, you don't naturally just wake up thinking like this. You don't pray like this. It requires the commitment to read the Bible regularly and go to church regularly to think like Psalm 79. I've seen it every year of my life as a pastor, every year as a Christian. The further away you get from the Bible, the more regularly you will think that you are the center of the universe. We're prone to bend inward on ourselves. This is what we call the fallen condition of humans. And so we need regular reminders to think like, talk like, pray like Psalm 79. So brothers and sisters, Christians, members of Embassy Church, do you ever pray this way? More importantly, do you think this way? The most central thing that God cares about is his own supreme glory and allegiance. So pray. Hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever made that connection? That when God becomes human and humans say, teach us to pray, the first prayer request out of his mouth is honor the holiness of your name, your person, your reputation, your character. All that you are is being summed up in your name. So make that name great in every corner of the earth. That's the first prayer request in the well-known Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, I think this should be a bread and butter kind of prayer. Or to put it another way, it should be the thing that drives every single one of your prayers. Anything that you ask for should hopefully be able to fall under the banner so that you would get glory. God, bring healing to my, my sickness so that you would get glory. If I don't get healed by your will and it is for you to allow me to suffer, then let me suffer well in your strength for your glory. He can get glorified by you being weak and relying upon him. He can get glory by you being strong and being healed with a snap of his fingers. But is your prayer, God, get glory. What I want more than anything is for the praise of your name among the nations. For those of you that have been around the Bible, my hope is that what I'm saying right now just sounds like another good reminder. Yes, that in fact is the most central theme, not in just Psalm 79, but the entire scriptures. God's end goal and purpose for everything that he does is for his own glory and praise. Amen? Now before we move on to point three. Is it possible, like Oprah, some of us might think, this God seems kind of egotistical. If the thing he wants more than anything is praise, adulation, pats on the back, who would want to worship that kind of God? He seems like an egomaniac. It's a fair question. I don't, I don't mean to quickly dismiss it like that's silly. It's a fair question. This sounds crazy. 
But really, it's the only logical possibility. You have to just stop and think about this. And you won't stop and think about it anywhere else. It's not going to be on the news today. It's not going to be in the newspaper. You're not going to see a lot of people writing about it on the internet. There won't be many Facebook posts and social media activity about the glory of God's name, except on DesiringGod.com. The reason why it is good news that God is about his glory is because there is nothing else for him to esteem and glory in because nothing else is as good as he is. The difference between you and me saying, more than anything else, Embassy Church exists for the praise of Pastor Phil's amazing preaching. Would any of you be like, hello, we're done. That was my last Sunday at Embassy Church. The answer should be yes. Remove the pastor. Stop coming. If you start hearing and getting the vibe that church leaders and church members are about their own personal glory, that's fundamentally non-Christian. It's sin. Sin is exchanging God's glory for our glory. That's one of the simplest ways to understand sin. So it would be sin for anybody in the universe, any creature, anything, to proclaim, worship me. Yet if you are the most lovely, if you are the definition of good, if you are the supreme standard of truth, if you are the definition of what is beautiful and right in the world, what else are you going to be admiring? What other thing is there to be giving praise to? If God were to praise anyone or anything else at any moment, at that moment, he ceases to be God. That thing now becomes the most lovely, good, true, supreme object of praise. He can't. And you should be thankful that the result of God's jealous, zeal-like anger that people would reject what is the most good, true, and beautiful thing in all of existence, that he would get passionate about that, that he would care about that. That is good news for you because it results in the judgment of the wicked and the salvation of his people. Yes, there is a jealous and angry God. And he is jealous not just for you. He is jealous for his namesake, but because of that jealousy, the result, point three, is salvation through judgment. We don't have to choose between whether God is filled with wrath or love. We don't have to choose if God is filled with anger or love. His love and anger rise and fall together. We don't have to choose of whether God's going to choose to be faithful to his promises to judge or his faithful to his promises to save. Psalm 79 makes all of this extremely clear. God will be faithful to his promises that when anyone on the earth rejects him and chooses to worship anything other than him, that will not work out well for them in this life and it will result in eternal punishment in the next. Anyone, even someone born in a Christian family, even someone born in the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant. Do you realize that the flow of Psalm 79 is that, O oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid ruins, Jerusalem. 
They have given these bodies over. They poured out blood all around Jerusalem. We're being taunted. Why? Why is God being so harsh and not protecting Israel? And that's why Marilyn came up and read for us Ezekiel. And that's just one of many examples. Because they've rejected God. Why would he treat them different from all the other nations when they become just like all the other nations? Why would he protect them from the wrath of the nations and the onslaught of this war when Babylon comes in and destroys the temple, which is specifically being referred to in our song? Why would he do that? Why would he protect them when they don't want him? They've given up and worshipped the Babylonian gods and the Assyrian gods, and they've set up idols all over the place. So when you claim to be a follower of God, but you don't actually worship God, you'll receive just judgment. Being a Christian in name only, nominally, it's sometimes said. I'm a Christian, but your heart is not devoted to wholehearted worship for his supreme glory. All you want is a quick fix. Just need some help right now for my end goal and glory. God, help me for my glory. That, that's not being a Christian. That's being a needy person. And you think Jesus might help you. The result of that will be judgment. It won't work out well for you in the end, both in this life and the life to come. So the nation of Israel is being judged by God precisely because they have become just like all the other nations. Meaning, God will fairly and equally treat everyone from beginning to end, from age to age. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And just because you speak the name of Jesus, but your heart is so far from him, and you don't actually worship him, then God will pour out his jealous anger on you in judgment. As he did his people in Psalm 79, and as he has done time and time again, his jealous anger will burn forever and ever. So where's the hope? Is there hope for you? Especially any of you that are here that are thinking, I don't know, my heart, it's deceitful. I don't even always understand it. Yes, I say that I'm a Christian, but there's a lot of times where I feel like I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Brother or sister, member of Embassy Church especially, do not allow your own individual assessment of your own heart to be the determining factor of your encouragement of this sermon. This is what the church is for. The church is to help one another discern whether or not there are evidences of God's grace in our heart, and whether there's sustained faithful obedience throughout our life. It is not, well, you know, if I'm really honest, I didn't really want to come to church today, but I'm here, and all you did was talk about anger and how God's jealous because I'm an idol worshiper, and I'm afraid that God's going to worship me. If you're afraid of that, you actually care, and you're here at church today, there's a good chance that all of those things are just evidences that you do, in fact, have a sincere heart. But you should not just look down at yourself and say, well, I determined God's angry with me. Have a legitimate conversation with somebody about this. Be open and transparent of like what actual evidences you have for concluding that maybe God's angry with you right now. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be able to pray just like Psalm 79, 9 says. Help us 
O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your namesake. Christians are people who put on God's name on themselves. That's literally what the word Christian means. We are Christians. We follow and identify ourselves with Jesus Christ, the one true God of the Bible. And by bearing that name in baptism, by repentance of sin, in church membership, we are saying, God, we want your name to be associated with our personal lives. And so until the church says there's a disconnect between your profession of faith and your actual actions, you should assume that you are a Christian because you've been vetted, you've been in fellowship, you've done a membership interview, you've done a membership class, you have people around you. This is what I mean. Do not rely on your own individual self-assessment to think God's angry with me right now because I sinned or because my heart is prone to wander. That's so typical for everybody. You're not unique. The Christian life has ups and downs. There are people who struggle in doubt. There are people that struggle with God's anger and his wrath. But there's room and space for you to struggle. That's what I think these Psalms are here for. So realize that the result of God's judgment on his people is when those people resolutely and defiantly reject him. Is that what you're doing? If you're here today, then it's likely if you're listening to this sermon, you're probably not the kind of person that's like, I hate God. I mean, you could be, but the likelihood seems little. It's the sort of people that have renounced their faith in Jesus altogether, either with their actions, with clear, obvious, unrepentant sin, or with their words. I'm done with Jesus. Remember our story? Oprah Winfrey? If he's jealous of me, well, then I want nothing to do with this God. I have a different God that I have decided to believe in, and he is in everything, a kind of pantheistic God. So instead of Oprah bowing her knee to the one true God, she made a God in her own image. And this, my friends, will bring the wrath and judgment of God precisely because of his love for his name, but also for every person on the planet, every nation. Did you see the repetition of, of nations? God, the nations have come in and judged us. You've allowed them to do that. So pour out your anger on the nations, verse 6. In verse 10, why should the nations say? You need to remember that God chose a people, the people of Israel. They're referenced here as the tribe of Jacob because Jacob's name became Israel. Jacob's family, the 12 tribes that became the nation of Israel, would be judged just like all the other nations, but because of God's merciful promises that he will not allow his anger and wrath to burn forever on every single sinner, he will, precisely for the sake of his name that is filled with great compassion, look at verse 8, let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, God, save us for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for the sake of your name. Did God ever answer Asaph's prayer? Did he come speedily or did he wait too long? Did he come at just the right time? In Galatians chapter 4, we have the specific phrase of in the perfect timing. You could translate that phrase in Galatians 4 when Paul's saying, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And Jesus Christ, God's son, 
lived a perfect life as the only human that was undeserving of God's anger and wrath. Every single word he said was a word that was in communion with what was true and right and reflects the character of God. Every single thought that he thought in his mind, every single action that he did was under the will of the Father. Everything that Jesus did as a human was sinless, perfect, and spotless, and he did it to the honor of his Father's name. Yet, the sovereign plan of the triune God is that God would send forth his Son, and he would absorb and take on the full measure of God's anger and wrath. The fancy theological word is propitiation. He became the assuaging of God's wrath, propitiation. The absorber like a sponge. When you see a cross, either above my head or in art, think of it as the sponge that absorbs all of God's anger towards sinners. Jesus Christ, as he hung on the cross, soaked up every wrath-filled, angry, zealous jealousy that God had as God would die in our place in the person of Jesus. As 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He knew no sin. The perfect spotless lamb never once sinned. But he became sin so that we could become the righteous people of God who inherit the name of God and are changed from the inside out to be the kind of people that would worship God faithfully. When Marilyn came up for us, she read for us the reason for God's anger and wrath. As we conclude this sermon, I want you to think about the promise of God not just to pour out his wrath on people that have sinned, but I want you to realize that the prophet Ezekiel continued. And listen to this beautiful, glorious statement that became true when the prayer of Psalm 79 was answered and the promises of God were fulfilled in the person of Jesus, the work of Christ on the cross, and the ascension to Christ into heaven and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Marilyn ended her reading and it said, but when they came to the nations, this is Ezekiel 36 verse 20, they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And in that people, they said, These people are of the Lord, yet they have to be removed out of his land. But I did have concern for my holy name, which is the house of Israel. My holy name, which has been profaned among the nations. Therefore, says the Lord God, it is not because of your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but it is for the sake of my holy name, the name that you have profaned among the nations. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And I will take you from the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries, and I will bring you back to your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness and from all of your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and I will give you a new spirit to put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all of your uncleanliness, and I will summon the grain, and I will make it abundant, and I will lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit tree increase and the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. You will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe for yourself the iniquities and your abominations. But it is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. For the sake of God's name, he removed their heart of stone and put a new spirit within them, and he cleansed every single one of their sins. When we read the Gospel of John, he makes it clear, John chapter 3, that this spirit is the result of the finished work of Jesus on the cross and his ascension into heaven. And he will wash you and cleanse you and make you new. And so his name will be made known among all the nations. And it will be as people turn from their sins, repent of their idolatry, and find all of their hope and their help in the God of the Bible, the one true God, the one who is jealous, angry, angry with sin, because that sin destroys your life destroys the glory of the name that you are to bear, the name of God. You were made in his image, so you should reflect him with your life. So again, are you here today and you're not a Christian? Then I would ask, have you actually rejected the full message of Christianity? The accurate depiction of God as holy and zealous with a kind of passion for his name that results in your salvation. He has provided for you full salvation, cleansing and atoning for your sins. The very prayers that were prayed in Psalm 79 have been answered when Christ comes and takes away all of our sins. Salvation came through the judgment of Christ on the cross. Yes, God is a jealous and angry God, but not jealous of you, jealous for your sake, as he makes much of his name through his work in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to pray that there would be clarity from this teaching of your scriptures, that we would bow the knee before the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we would submit ourselves to your holy revealed character, the purity of your name. Lord, we want to ask that we would be able to receive afresh the promise of your spirit that will cleanse us and wash us and make us new. We want to pray that we would believe with all of our hearts that some of us in this room that we're here today precisely because your spirit has changed us. And we'd be encouraged that you do not have an ounce of wrath and anger against us anymore. That that anger and wrath has been completely absorbed by your son Jesus on the cross and every defilement of your name has been cleansed and removed. So that it's as if you don't even remember them anymore. So we pray that as we take the Lord's Supper now, we would do so in a worthy manner and not bring more judgment on ourselves. We pray that we would be repentant and humbled and we would take upon the bread and the cup so that we would align ourselves with your purposes and the glory of your holy name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.
for your glory. Amen.